So we're going to continue our study this morning in the book of Genesis. We've covered all of chapter 1, so we're going to move into to chapter 2 this morning. And uh, we're just going to see how far we get. Um, okay, let's just, uh, let's just commit this, this time of study to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we just thank you once again for your precious word. And Lord, as we look at these pages now, we just ask that you speak to us again. Lord, although these things were written down, Lord, thousands of years ago, Lord, there is real, there is alive and has such power to impact us as now as, Lord, they've ever done. And Father, we want to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And Lord, we recognize that won't come from the world's wisdom. That will only come from your word. So Lord, transform us, we pray, that we will become more and more like Jesus. So Lord, just help us to understand and comprehend these things. Just bless this time of study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 2 then, and we read, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Finished, complete. God had done everything. There was nothing new that God was going to add. And that means there's going to be no new information added to what God has done. That which has been designed to reproduce will do so, as God has planned it to be. But there's going to be no more matter or energy or anything created now. God has finished his work of creation. You know, when we kind of finish a project, there's very often a sense of satisfaction uh, and achievement. And yet I kind of wonder with God that although he's finished and declares everything very good, there must have been an element of sadness, knowing that all of this was going to gradually unravel because of man, because of sin. You know, everything that God is looking at and declaring good at the end of chapter 1, before long is going to be subject to the curse, the fall, which doesn't just affect mankind, it affects all of creation. And you can't help but wonder whether God was pleased, of course, with what he's created, that's what the word tells us, but there was that element of of sadness, that we had to go through this process before we'll eventually come right at the end of the Bible into the book of Revelation to that place where we read that everything is made new and that God's walk with man is restored. You know, if, if Adam and Eve had just been obedient, and we'll talk more in a moment about this, you know, we could have just gone from, from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22 and all that in the middle wouldn't have had to have happened. But of course, It did have to happen. And one of the key reasons is because God has given us free choice. God didn't want a people that would love him because they had no other option. And we'll see that in the fact that God has placed these trees in the garden that we're going to look at in just a moment. You know, but at the end of chapter 1, I believe everything is good. God declares it all good. And at that point, I don't believe that Satan has yet fallen. The whole angelic realm worshipping God. The book of Job speaks about all the hosts of heaven praising and worshipping God whilst he's creating. And so I think Satan at this point was still Lucifer. He was the light bearer. He had this incredible job, seemingly of a kind of a worship leader. We're told that inbuilt into him, he had these kind of musical instruments. And he had this privilege of walking to and fro in front of the, the throne of God. And yet, he rebelled. He rebelled because on day six... Just as he's expecting to be given everything, God turns around and says, now I'm going to create man. Well, that was bad enough, but then God says, in my image. And no angelic being had been created in God's image. But then God creates this creature called man in his own image. 
And of course, God then knew that because of the fall, it was going to ultimately take the sacrificial death of his own son, the one who we've already seen is light, to redeem the earth and Adam's offspring. But, you know, even then, sadly, many of Adam's descendants would ultimately reject the light in favor of the darkness. But there's hope, and we actually get a glimmer of that hope in verse 2. Because we read, And on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. Now, do you think God was tired? Do you think God was like, oh, it's been a tough week? No, God wasn't tired. God doesn't get tired. So why did God rest on the seventh day? Well, there's a couple of reasons. The obvious reason is to give us a pattern by which to live our lives. And we read that in Exodus 20, verse 11, and also in Exodus um, 31 at the end of the, the chapter, that God gave us a pattern for our working weeks, that we would have six days to labor and one day of rest. So God chose to create in that time frame as well. Of course, God could have created any time frame he chose. He could have done it in six milliseconds if he wanted to. He's God. But he chose six days to create and then rested purposely. And you realize that the first day Adam spends on earth is a day of rest, a day of fellowship with God. You know, that, that's what that relationship really is all about. But there's something more in this because we've had 6,000 years, according to the Bible, of human history. 6,000 years of toil and suffering. But we're about to enter a millennial age when Jesus Christ will rule and reign from Jerusalem. When, as the book of Acts chapter 3 verse 21 says, it will be the times of restitution of all things. God will restore things to the way it was at this point. Animals aren't going to go around killing and, and eating each other. Isaiah gives us lots of details of what this world is going to be like when Jesus is ruling. But there will be peace because the Prince of Peace will be in control. And all of the world's problems that we see at the moment will evaporate, they'll go because we'll have proper government, godly government. And so this also speaks of that Sabbath rest, not just the seventh day, but ultimately that time when Christ's work is completed. But there's more than even that. If you turn to the book of Hebrews with me, if we turn to Hebrews chapter 4, because we've got a really interesting passage there that really it actually refers to the passage or the verse we're looking at here. The passage starts and says, let, and it's referring to those who are Christ, let us, let, let, those who are Christ therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. Now that's referring to Israel, because the gospel was preached to Israel. But then we're told, but the word preached did not profit Israel, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. You know, what God is saying there is that because we have put our trust in Christ, not only do we have our six-day week and we rest on the seventh? Not only do we have this millennial kingdom awaiting us, but we also have in type here our lives prior to Christ and our lives in Christ. Our, our time of toil and struggle and against sin, that's the six days. And then when we enter into Christ, we enter into that place of rest. And it's, of course it's rest because Christ has done everything. He's completed 
all of the work. There's nothing we can add to our salvation. We don't have to strive. It's no longer a religious practice where we're trying to do things to please God. God's done it. It's simply, do you accept it and believe it or not? He goes on, as I've sworn in my wrath, he says, if they shall, and the idea is if they shall not, speaking of Israel, enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. I, God had a plan. And his plan was that everybody would enter into this place of rest once we'd got past the fall. Of course, God's ideal would have been that we didn't have to go through the fall, but of course we did. Adam rebelled, sinned. That brought sin into the world and death. So then God's plan was that everybody could then enter into this rest. God made a way for everyone. We read in in 1 John that Christ is the propitiation, the payment in full. Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. God has made a way for everybody. You know, people say, why would a God of love send people to hell? He doesn't. Why would anybody choose hell when God has offered everybody an eternity with him? So God's plan was that everybody would be able to enter into this rest. And that plan had existed from before the foundation of the world. It goes on the verse and says, For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise. And this is the verse we're looking at. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. You see, even from the beginning of the world, before sin had entered, God's plan of redemption was established. And God had foreordained a place of rest in Christ. And a time of rest in Christ's everlasting kingdom. And it says, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Now notice the key there is if. The gospel is always for the whosoever. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limited the third day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. You see, God has had this incredible plan, and he's brought it down, and we're going to look at this as we carry on our study through Genesis. But the plan of salvation, God chose Abraham and his family. And then ultimately he chose David and his family, through whom the Savior would come. Let me just kind of paraphrase that bit we just looked at there. Really, what it's saying is that God foreordained that some would enter into the Sabbath rest through Christ. The offer went, first of all, to Israel, but they didn't believe by faith. God, therefore, chose a time for this offer of salvation and rest for our souls to go out to the world through, ultimately, the seed of David. And then it carries on and says, if, and you, might, you may have Jesus translated there, it's not a problem, um, but you need to understand that the name Jesus is also the name Joshua, Yeshua. And in the context, it's speaking of Joshua. It says, for if Joshua, who had obviously led them into Canaan, had given Israel rest, then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day? If Joshua had managed to bring a, a kind of time of rest for Israel, well, that, that would have been it. But it's clear that that didn't happen. You know, if God's plan had been fulfilled through Israel's obedience to the Mosaic law, well, there would have been no need for the cross. I sometimes kind of... Tease people a little bit and say, you know, there's two ways to be saved. And people go, oh, it's heretical. But there are. You've got two ways to be saved. One, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his completed work. The other way, obey every single detail of the law, which we can't do. 
So actually, there is only one way to be saved. But the truth is, if you could keep the entire law, then you would be holy. You would be perfect before God. Of course, there is the problem of sin that we've inherited, which still means there is only one way of salvation. But, but the reason God gave the law was to show that we can't keep his perfect standard. And Joshua leading Israel into Canaan, he couldn't bring a, a state of rest for the people. Because even if he could have managed, if he'd have managed to have rest from all their enemies, there was still that internal problem of sin. But this passage in Hebrews goes on and says, however, there remains therefore a rest to the people of God. Again, the law couldn't bring us to a place of rest. It could only condemn us. I've said already, Christ has paid for our sin. Anyone who simply believes in him by faith is assured that there is a place of rest from our striving against sin, and that place is in Christ. So for he that is entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Do you see, God got to the seventh day and rested. And this is a beautiful picture for us because if we are saved by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we also come to a place of rest. No more works. We don't have to do anything. Salvation is given to us. It's called grace. It's such a wonderful picture. And this is just right at the beginning of of the Bible, but really encapsulated in this verse. It's the whole of the gospel. You know, again, it's not because of what we've done. It's because of who he is. He carries on. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. Let any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And that's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? Really, what it's saying is, let us labor not to labor. That's what it's saying. Let us really strive and try hard not to try hard. Because simply, it's trusting in Christ. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. You know, the most important thing anybody can do is to come to that place of decision about who Jesus Christ is. Jesus asked the disciples, Jesus specifically said to Peter, Whom do men say I am? That is the question. That is the question that everybody has to answer. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? If you reply and say Jesus Christ is just a good person, you've totally missed it. As C.S. Lewis and many others have pointed out, if Jesus was just a good person, well, he was mad, he was crazy, he went around saying he was God. He went around saying that he was going to rise from the dead. A good man doesn't say those things. Jesus made all sorts of promises for the disciples. He promised the disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones, judging the trolls and ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. But if he had no power to do that, he wasn't a good person at all. He was just a fraud. So the only conclusion you can really come to is that Jesus really is God manifest in the flesh. Once we come to that place, we come to that place of rest. We can't do anything, but God has done everything. All our sin was paid for on the cross, and our righteousness has been given to us by Christ. So we can be assured of this Sabbath rest that God intended for all who would believe. Verse 3 carries on back in Genesis. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he had rested from all his works which God created and made. Now that we've seen in type what the Sabbath is really all about, we start to understand why God was so protective of this model. You know, God instigated the Sabbath and it was something very specific he gave to Israel that they were to keep the Sabbath, to honor the Sabbath. You may remember an account we have a little bit later on when the children of Israel are starting their, their journey in the, the wilderness. 
And an individual goes out and gathers sticks on the Sabbath day. Now, every one of us here this morning, if we looked at that, would go, well, it seems a bit harsh because they, they killed the guy. But do you not understand what Jesus is saying and what God is showing us in his word? That if you try and do it your own way, you annul what Christ has done. Just something small and simple. It's either your works or it's his works. And that's why God is so protective of the Sabbath. And of course, for us as Christians, we're not commanded to keep the Sabbath. And typically we celebrate, as we do this morning, the first day of the week. Can I, can I just go off on a tangent for a moment? I was just sharing this with Jeff last night. I, I get quite annoyed sometimes at the way certain translations of the Bible translate things. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And I was listening to a DVD on the Feast of Israel that Jeff had lent me. And Emir Savati was talking. And he was saying, you know, that the Jews don't have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. They have the first day of the week, the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and Shabbat, seventh. And that's how they refer to their days of the week. And I was reading to Amita during the week, and we just got in, in her Bible up to the point of the resurrection. And it said... And on the Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb. Okay, it's right in a sense because we know that's what happened. But I thought, it's all right for you and I to say that. But when you put that in God's word, do you not see what happens? Sunday is a pagan label. It came from those that worshipped the planets. We have Sunday, obviously Saturn Day, Moon Day, Tuesday was actually Mercury's Day. Wednesday, Mars' day, Thor's day. You know, all, all of these, these days of the week are there to honour these pagan gods of the planets. And God makes it very clear in the book of Deuteronomy that we are not to give glory to those things. We are only to give glory to God. Now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that you go out and you stop using the days of the week to talk. You know, that's not what I'm saying. I don't think God has a problem with us in, in so doing. We have no intention of glorifying those things. To us, it's just a label. But when you put it in God's word... I have a real problem with that. Because the Bible doesn't use any of the days of the week. It says the first day of the week. That's God's label. That's what God calls it. When we put Sunday in there, we're using man's title to give honour to something other than God. Anyway, sorry, just a little side. Verse uh, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, this phrase, these are the generations, I'm actually going to find nine times. Um, well, uh, I'll put the notes up later, and I'll put some slides together for the, for the uh, website. But actually, these verses, all through Genesis, mark a new division of the book of Genesis. And some scholars actually think that what we have here is accounts recorded by individuals that Moses then later compiles. No question, Moses is the author of the book of Genesis, the author of the Torah, penman in a sense god's the real author but we have this this first bit that up to genesis 2 3 it's god's account and seemingly god had given this account to adam who passed it down and so on but from verse 4 onwards of chapter 2 we're now going to get adam's account and then later we're going to go on and we're going to get noah's account and then later we get Abraham's account, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph's account. They all record details that nobody else would have known. I mean, Joseph particularly. 
So it's interesting, what we seem to have in Genesis is a compilation of eyewitness accounts of people that were actually there that compile this information and Moses simply takes these, these records that have been recorded and puts it together for us in this coherent form. But it's interesting that the implication therefore is that those opening, the opening chapter up to the end of chapter 2 verse 3 is actually given to us directly by God. Which has a lot more weight to the authenticity of those things that we've already looked at. This isn't just Hebrew poetry penned in Babylon, as uh, was once told me. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. So this is now the record of these things. And we're going to be given a breakdown of this. And we go into uh, verse 5 and 6. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. Now once again, this is just one of those verses that indicates that there was no rain at this point, that the whole hydro system was very different than it is now, coupled with what we read in Hebrews eleven seven, which tells us that Noah, by faith, believed in things he had not yet seen. Well, that has to be referring to the rain. So it implies very clearly that before the flood, there had not been rain. That puts the whole thing in a little bit more uh, context when the people before the flood rejected what Noah was saying. Noah was preaching for a 100 years in the lead up to the flood, and people didn't listen. It's not surprising. They'd not seen it. They didn't understand it, but God has still given a 100 years for man to, to change. And Interestingly, We've got that statement there that there was not a man. Okay, it's indicated that along with the next verse, what we're seeing now is a recap of chapter one. Now, we're going to see in a minute, a lot of people start to have a real problem with chapter one and chapter two, and they'll tell you there's contradictions. We'll come back to some in a minute that people suggest. Um, Verse seven, let's go on. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. Now, this verse, again, is very instructive because firstly we're told that man was formed of the dust of the ground. It's very unlikely that Adam, Moses, whoever, would have actually known when they were recording this that the human body is made up almost entirely of 13 elements, all of which are found in the ground. So this, again, is another one of those statements that is absolutely correct from a scientific perspective. Another insight we we glean here is that we're made up of three component parts. Because it says, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So we have body, that which is formed of the ground, the breath, the spirit, the ruach in the Hebrew, and then ultimately the soul. You know, our physical body is just the container in which we reside. It's not who we are. Again, God forms man out of the dust, but man is not really alive until God breathes life into him. Uh, the real us is inside the body. Uh, and the Bible likens our bodies to a tabernacle or a tent in which we dwell. 2 Corinthians 5.14 and 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 both speak of our bodies being like a tent. Yeah, and when we die, of course, our body goes back to the dust. And the Spirit is the part that has been given to us by God. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7 makes that statement. That our spirit has been given to us by God. In effect, it's, it's our conscience, it's our God consciousness. Now, at the time of the fall, spiritually we died. And, and that's why we find what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.14, that the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. 
You see, people don't get or understand spiritual things because, in a sense, the spiritual component in their life is off. It's switched off. It's dead. And it's not until we are born again that we are born again spiritually. But the incredible thing here is that we, when we are born again, we're not just given a new spirit. We're given God's Holy Spirit. The incredible thing is we actually end up better off than we were before. And, of course, then we get to our soul. That's the real us. That's who we are. And the soul, we mentioned this previously in one of the other sessions a few weeks ago, I think. But the soul is made up of our heart and our mind. Our heart is the emotional component and our mind the intellectual component. And we make decisions at times with either the heart or the mind. And all of that com- combined is our soul. That's who we are. That is the eternal part of us. You know, real life, according to the Bible, is not physical but spiritual. You know, and those who live just simply to satisfy the, the needs and the demands and the requirements of the body are not really truly living. Jesus came, John 10.10 uh, 10 says, Jesus came to give us life in abundance, to make us really alive. That's what God would have for us. And only if we have, obviously, as is now, body, soul, and spirit, are we really truly as God designed us and intended us to be. And then we go on, verse 8, it's very interesting, because it says, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, I'm amazed how many people miss this verse. Because we then go on and we start to see God do some wonderful things. And people will tell you, oh look, there's a contradiction. Because in chapter 1, we find that the birds and the plants are made first, and then Adam is made on the sixth day. But in chapter 2, we've got a problem because Adam's first and then it's the birds and the plants and, and so on. No. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. God plants a garden and he puts man in the garden. This is not talking about the world. It's not talking about the universe. It's talking about the garden. And it's telling us what happens in the garden. We go on to verse 9. And out of the ground in the garden... May the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Has God already created trees? Yes. The earth is replete with trees at this point. But God now plants a garden. And in the garden, God now causes the trees to grow in front of Adam. He says, pleasant to the sight and good for food. And we're told the tree of life also in the midst of garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what God is doing is just producing out of the ground another one of these things, each of the trees and and so on. Well, why would God do that? Well, I think one very clear reason is to show Adam that God is creator. You see, God knows the end from the beginning, and he knew that in a very short time from now, Satan was going to come and try and deceive Adam. If Satan had come and said, oh, you don't believe that God created it, I did it, really, what would Adam have done? See, Adam can absolutely refute any claim that Satan's responsible or there's some other mechanism because he's seen God do it before his eyes. You see, God is just simply showing Adam that he's creator. You know, history has shown how easily man gets led away from trusting God as creator. But I think one of the key reasons that God does this is simply to show Adam that God himself was responsible. And Adam gets to see then firsthand God making all of these things. Now, just as an aside, break the monotony. From this verse, Genesis 1.29, through to the end of Genesis 2 verse 9, we've got 
mention of the trees, the things that God creates. Now, we've talked about equidistant letter sequences in the past. Okay, so an equidistant letter sequence is where you start with a particular letter, you jump forward a number of letters, you take the next letter, you jump forward the same number again, and it takes the next letter, and it makes a word. Now, by random chance, that should occur in any piece of text. The longer the word you're trying to see, the harder it is for that to, or the, the less likely that will occur naturally, just by random chance. But if you look at any piece of text, you can find an equidistant letter sequence. You'll find some short words very easily, longer words, you'll find some. But the incredible thing is, in this portion of text, which talks about the trees that God created, we find every tree that is mentioned in the rest of the Bible encoded as an equidistant letter sequence. That is incredible. The chance of that happening by random processes alone just is impossible. It wouldn't happen. They happen to be centered just on these verses where God is talking about the trees and every other tree that's mentioned in Scripture is recorded here. What incredible evidence of design we've got in the Bible. Let's go on to verse 10. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden. From thence it was parted. It became, uh, it became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasses the whole land of Havalia, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is that compasses the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hydekel. That it is which goes toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth, fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, why are we given that information? Because, by the way, don't go looking for that gold, because you're not going to find it. Because we then get, in Genesis chapter 6, we get to the flood. And the whole of the world is transformed. The fountains of the deep break up and everything else, and there's earthquakes and all sorts of things going on. So the whole of the, the, the way the world looks is very different after the flood from before the flood. So why are we given that information? I don't know. I really don't know. But I guarantee you this, we are going to find out one day why that information is there. Now, well, you recognize some of those names, and what happens is after the flood, Noah's descendants would have known about these things. Of course, Noah and his sons would have passed this information on what had happened before the flood and so on, and the places that existed. And some of these names then get used for other locations. Of course, we recognize Ethiopia. Heidekel is another name that's given to another river. The Euphrates, of course, we're familiar with that in Iraq today. So those names get reused a little bit like in America. You'll find in New Hampshire, you'll find a Portsmouth, which interestingly is not actually a port. So, but anyway, uh, so uh, you know, those all those names get, get reused in different places. That's exactly what happened here. But why are we given this information? I genuinely don't know. And if anybody wants to dig into this and study it and look at it, look at the meaning of all of those names, you may find a wonderful discovery. What I have learned in all my years of studying the Bible is there is no meaningless details in the Bible. And when I find something like this, I get excited. What is it that God has here? You know, one of my wacky ideas, and you can do with this what you want, I believe that the Bible is the Lamb's book of life. And I believe that in this book, God has the names of everybody who is saved. I think they're probably encoded as equidistant letter sequences or however God wants to do it. And by the way, there's no point necessarily going, because you can get computer tools and you can search. But you know, God knows us by a name other than the name that we are known by ourselves. God will give to us a new name. 
So just wonder, in the text here, let's look at the screen, I haven't put the slides up, you've got it in your Bibles, look at your Bibles. In that text, I wonder what's there. I wonder what things God has, has hidden there. Because that's not just there to make up the numbers. Or maybe it is to make up the numbers. But God has put it for a reason. Let's go on, verse 15 then. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. This is just one of those staggering things in the Bible. Because God has already, in the garden, we've seen this already, put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Both are there. God gives Adam the warning here about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and says, don't eat of it. But he doesn't forbid him eating of the tree of life. And one of the questions that will probably go with us into eternity, and maybe we'll get an answer one day, is why didn't Adam go to the tree of life and eat of it? Why? We're going to see, by the way, that tree of life in the New Jerusalem. It'll be there. But for some inexplicable reason, Adam does not go and take of the fruit of the tree of life. He ends up eating of the only tree that's forbidden. I mean, you know how it is with children, don't you? You know, you put something somewhere and you say, don't touch. And you know what's going to happen next. Especially with my youngest. She sees it as a challenge. But you know, children are like that, aren't they? You know, don't do, you know, the worst thing you can do is bring their attention to it. But of course, God here, Adam is no child. God is giving him very clear instruction. And this is really a case of do you trust God or not? God gives us instructions and the same thing applies. Do we trust him or not? This isn't about do you understand why? Do you understand all the consequences? It's not about that. It's simply do you trust God? And God in his word and in our lives and through his spirit sometimes says don't do this. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation the Holy Spirit has checked you, your conscience. Maybe you've been about to say something or do something and you just feel God say no. And you may not understand it, but the question is are you going to be obedient? Sadly, we know Adam was not obedient. Let's just go on. We read verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. Now, just before we get into the, the, the details of this verse, I want you to just see something else. Eve is not yet created. Adam is told about the tree and not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Eve is not there. She doesn't get that instruction. Do you see what that's telling us? It was Adam's responsibility to instruct his wife. Now, God is going to hold Adam responsible, and yet at the same time, Eve also is accountable for her own actions. But it's a very clear lesson that husbands, you are responsible spiritually for your wives. And that is something that we should take very, very seriously. And Adam's failure to properly instruct his wife, well, you know what the consequences were. And how much has affected history. So now God says that he's going to make a a help meet for him. You know, man was created for fellowship. Ultimately fellowship with God. Because God doesn't want us to be just on our own. Now, there's all sorts of questions, you know, is there just one woman for every man? Does God have, you know, a perfect partner for everybody? 
You know, does God intend for some people to remain single? Others would maybe say, but maybe more could be accomplished as a couple. And then some would say, yeah, but if you're single, you can do more for the Lord. And Paul puts that argument forward. Well, one thing that is certain now is that we need to maintain fellowship with other believers. You know, God clearly here is saying man has been created for fellowship. Now, in the context, we're going to see God create woman. Fellowship is so important. I, I'm always a little perplexed when I find Christians that don't want to fellowship with other Christians. Something that's a little worrying in that. This uh, idea, though, that God is going to make a help meet for him. Uh, it's interesting. The idea is not somebody who is going to obey or be a servant for Adam. But the Hebrew actually implies the, an opposite. It's the other part of the equation. Equal. And yet at the same time, we see clearly details given, or information given in scripture as to the role of men and women. But the whole idea that the world puts across that we should be the same, that men and women should equally be able to do anything, it's not what the Bible teaches. God has made us different. Purposely. And we've already said that God originally created man Perfect male and female in one. That's what we saw back in chapter one. Male and female made he him is actually what the Hebrew says. God made Adam perfect male and female. And what God is now going to do is take that female component out of man. And we read in verse 19, And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Now again, people will say, well, isn't this recreate? No, no, this is just for Adam in the garden. Formed... Every beast of the field and fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature was the name thereof. And again, just people will tell you that the problem here is you've got the, the birds and things made after the animals. Well, yeah, but this is just in the garden. This isn't the work of creation. That's already done. But you see, what God does here is a very clear object lesson for Adam. Because God is creating Mr. And Mrs. Hippo. And they come and Adam names them and Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe and Mr. and Mrs. Stickinsecton and so on. You know, and they're all coming and Adam's starting to get the idea here. Hang on, there's, there's Mr. and Mrs. and Mr. and Mrs. and... You see, God brings Adam to the place of realizing his need. And God does the same with us today. God allows circumstances and even disappointment to help us to understand. You know, experience really is a good teacher in many ways for us. And there's some things that we need to learn the hard way. Otherwise, we don't really understand or appreciate the lesson. And Adam must have had an incredible intellect. He's naming all these creatures. And I'm sure quite quickly he got to the point of realizing that everything else had a male and a female. And for him, there was just him. And we read verse 20. Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. Another thing that comes straight out of this is that Adam realizes there was a gulf, a big chasm that existed between man and animals. You know, even if Adam had seen a particularly attractive sloth, then he would have been disappointed because suddenly there's Mr. and Mrs. Sloth and they've already got each other and it doesn't work. And Adam realized that actually... Man is so different, created different. We're eternal. Animals are not. 
And so we read in verse 21 that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. Well, it's been said before that one of the reasons that men don't understand women is because we were asleep when they were made. But actually, that aside, another thing, by the way, just actually, people somewhere got this idea, and I've heard this said before, that, that men have one less rib. No. No, that's, that's not the case. If, if you have an injury, your offspring don't have that same injury. Okay? Genetically, men have the same... No, it's just, you know, somebody, somebody down the line got that a little bit confused. But what God does is take the man part, sorry, the woman part, out of Adam. And this is why we carry on in verse 22. It says, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Not just in a physical sense but in a spiritual emotional every possible way the woman part was separated from man and that's why we have the next verse which says therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave literally be joined tightly together cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh that's what god intends This union that God had originally established, the woman part taken out of man, and then through marriage, and God is the one who uh, instigates marriage and tells us what marriage is, not the world. So the world has no right to redefine it. It's not theirs in the first place. So God then says that through marriage, a man and woman are brought back together and made complete. She was the most beautiful woman in the whole world. She was, of course, the only woman in the whole world at that point as well. But And then we thought they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. You know, sin distorts nakedness. But the, the, there's more to it than just this, because although they are not physically wearing clothes, they were clothed. They were clothed with the glory of God. One of the things we come up against later in the Bible is something called the Shekinah glory. It's God's presence. And we see it in the temple and in various other situations. And I believe that originally Adam and, and his wife at this point, Adam and Eve now, are clothed with the presence of the glory of God. Because after they sin, they suddenly realize something is wrong. Suddenly a covering which was there has disappeared. Just as an aside, obviously Eve is a Gentile bride. Of course, not Jewish at this point. Isaac also goes and seeks a Gentile bride, Rebecca. Joseph, another individual who has a Gentile bride, Asenath. Moses goes and then chooses a Gentile bride, Zipporah. Salmon chooses Rahab as his bride, also a Gentile. And you remember the account we have of Boaz and Ruth. Ruth is a Gentile bride. That's six Gentile brides in Scripture. It's interesting because, as you're probably aware, throughout the Bible we find these patterns of seven. Well, there is a seventh, and it's the church. Because Christ is taking a Gentile bride unto himself. That brings us nicely to the end of the chapter. So, let's leave it there. Men, there is a weight of responsibility and expectation. There is also for women too, and as we go on through our subsequent weeks, more will come out. 
about our roles and what God has for us. Let's leave it there. Let's, let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the creation, Lord, that you just incredibly just designed and, and produced everything we see. Thank you, Lord, for the way, Lord, you have revealed in your word how you did things and why you did things. Thank you, Lord, for the Sabbath. Lord, not just a day of the week which we can rest, but, Lord, ultimately a time coming when this world will be at rest. But even more importantly, that in Christ we can cease from our labor and we can rest. Oh, Lord, thank you for these things, Lord. And just encourage us in your word. Help us to value and treasure and appreciate everything, every number, every detail, every place name. Lord, we just thank you. Just be with us as we go from here today. Keep us growing in grace, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen.